Hello and welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. This week, we're turning our attention to the Melbourne buyers and sellers who are left in limbo after the Victorian government's ban on private inspections was extended to October 26 at the earliest. It's an intense and difficult time for many in a lockdown-ridden state, and we unpack what help is available. Off the back of a $95 million sale in Sydney's Point Piper last week, we also check in with Domain's prestige property editor, Lucy Macken, to hear about the latest movements of the well-heeled. And then we chat with the first of our five block teams we'll be having on the show, Jimmy and Tam. Before we explore the situation in Victoria, we hear firsthand from an affected resident. Emma Nichols from the Melbourne beachside suburb of Sandringham shares what it's like to sell her home and not be able to find a new one due to current lockdown restrictions. I'm Emma Nichols. We live in Sandringham. We're downsizing our home, so sold it a couple of months ago. We thought really as soon as we were out of winter, we thought the beginning of September there would be tons on the market and we'd be able to choose somewhere. We left a lot of time to settle on the house. We wanted to buy something new. We didn't want the upheaval of, of renting and having to move twice, not to mention the cost. So we allowed four months to find somewhere new to buy. And then the restrictions came in, which have meant that we, we haven't been able to inspect anywhere at all. So now we're looking at, well, basically by the end of October, that's when the restrictions are going to be eased. We're going to have a matter of a few days to try and find somewhere else to live. The new owners, they wanted to settle in, in August, <laughs> so last month. So we pushed it out as far as we possibly could to allow ourselves time to find somewhere new. So that was for the beginning of November that we managed to push it out to. So we can't then change that now. We're just not going to have anywhere to live. So the likelihood is we're going to have to take somewhere that we haven't seen. That may not be in the right suburb, may not be the right number of bedrooms, but really, really hoping that the restrictions are eased before it comes to that. We've bought and sold a few houses in Australia. There's been a few that I've had my heart set on thinking it's a dream house. And then you go to see around it and it's so different. They're always really different when you see them in the flesh. And there's always just something that's not quite right. So there's no way we would buy somewhere sight unseen. If nothing changes, the likelihood is we will have to take a rental that's probably not going to be appropriate for what we're looking for. And it's going to, the financial implications, we've calculated if we have to rent for a year or we have to break a lease, the amount of money we'll lose could be like between 50 and 100 grand. It's going to have a huge impact on us. The frustration and feeling that hasn't really been considered by the government, the impact hasn't really been considered for many families like us and those that have already bought somewhere new and now can't sell their place. People have got empty investment properties and they can't get a tenant, even though there are loads of people that need to move and need to go into these houses and apartments. I feel like the government are thinking of open for inspections as in when you open up the house and everybody comes through 50 people at once or they're thinking about auctions where everyone's standing out in the streets. And that's not, it's not what we need at all. We just need private one-on-one inspections to resume so that people can find somewhere appropriate to live. It's so important. I mean, it's essential for people and yet and so, so low risk. Um, so yeah, I just felt so frustrated about it that I started up a petition just on change.org. Um, I thought if we could get a few voices together, then it might make people pay more attention and really consider it and might make Daniel Andrews like really have a think about what the ramifications are. I got a few hundred signatures fairly quickly on that. So there's obviously a lot of people that have been affected. I then sent it out to all the... MPs, 128 MPs. So a few people have written back um, to say that they agree, they can't understand why there's these restrictions on private inspections. 
I just feel like if if someone sits back, if they just take 10 minutes to actually think it through, then they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Of course they should be allowed. It's just trying to get them to think about it. Emma's situation is one that is echoed throughout Melbourne. She's a part of a growing number of buyers, sellers and renters urging the Victorian government to allow the resumption of private inspections ahead of the scheduled lifting on October 26. For those facing financial hardship, another six weeks of property market inactivity could deepen the strain. Joining me to explain the situation is Domain's Editorial Director, Adrian Lowe. Adrian, thank you for joining me on the podcast again. Good to be with you again, Alice. Adrian, could you give us the lay of the land as things stand at the moment in Victoria in terms of the bans on private inspections and also what this actually means in reality for sellers and buyers? Yeah, so essentially as part of the state government's roadmap out of coronavirus restrictions on social activity, private inspections as well as on-site auctions aren't permitted until at least the end of October or until cases, new cases of coronavirus are lower than five over a long-term average, which as we've seen from the recent case numbers is going to be a very high bar to, uh, to get over. What it is meaning for people is that those who've bought before these new restrictions were brought in place or those who've listed their properties or are trying to do a transaction is actually very difficult because you can't leave your home to inspect property. You can't leave to do any sort of property-related activity at all. So it means that people are kind of stuck in this no man's land where they're either their settlement's delayed or the transaction is delayed or they're having to depend on bridging finance to get them through along with an expected settlement period. And what it is meaning is, as we know, Alice, people sell or buy property for all sorts of different reasons. And so people who are in a real financial pickle are really getting tested at the moment. People are really struggling at the moment to make ends meet. They're dependent on this property transaction settling so they can find a new house and find somewhere else to live or even get into a new rental property. And that's proving really difficult at the moment. So if we just push that argument that the government's making out, I suppose they are saying that people can still legally transact property. The sort of elephant in the room, though, is that, of course, who wants to buy a property that they have not physically walked through? Correct. So at the moment, the only way to buy a property is to do an online auction, but the agent has to do that from their own home. What we are seeing now, of course, is no one's allowed to do the inspection and inspections that you can't do in person are going to be problematic because, as you say, no one wants to buy a property they haven't seen before in person. So what options are left for those needing to buy or sell and how are agents finding workarounds? We know that they're an entrepreneurial bunch if anyone's going to find a solution, I would have thought it's an agent in this instance. What sort of things are you seeing in terms of that, Adrian? There's not many options at this stage, but the vendor may use their phone to give a house tour to a prospective buyer and have the agent commentate. So you might have a three people on a, on a FaceTime call or a Zoom call, for example, and the vendor will be the sort of the one to hold the phone and show you around the house. The agent will commentate and then the potential buyer could ask any questions that they may have of both the the vendor and the agent, which is probably a unique perspective you'd get through this scenario. In other respects, there's probably not as many options. I mean, the auctions, as we know, have dried up because of that lack of inspection. So any of the sales that are happening at the moment are private treaty sales, and that tends to be the most common way that any of them happening now are happening. And I think what we are seeing is a lot of ingenuity during this difficult time for everybody. I think at the end of the day, property uh, revenue for the state government 
is up to about $100 million a week, and that's based on property industry modelling. But there's also all those other economic activity that comes from it. So between $100,000 to $140,000 from each property sale is generated from other industries like, you know, getting your finance and talking to your broker or your removalists or even renovating. So there's a lot riding on property being allowed to resume to some degree because ultimately the government is going to need some sort of revenue to look at recovery economically from the fallout of the pandemic. And I think that's really something that the government, and I know the Treasurer, is having to weigh up at the moment is where is revenue coming from to aid the state's recovery. And we've got a we've got a state budget towards the end of this month or next month. So it'll be really interesting to see how the state government is planning to at least address the shortfall from stamp duty revenue given the other pressing needs that the state has at the moment. Adrian, we know that the Real Estate Institute of Victoria, the REIV, as well as industry leaders have been campaigning the government to lift this ban on private inspections. How will this be playing out now that we've just heard that regional Victoria are going to ease restrictions and there has been an update, I believe, from the government on that? Can you share that with us and also how you think that will end up playing out for Melbourne? Yeah, so essentially public auctions are permitted again in regional Victoria and open for inspections can happen, but only as one-to-one. But what I think will happen is, in particularly in the bigger areas of Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo, I think we'll see the real estate industry and the government looking at these markets to see, can auctions happen safely, perhaps at a limited level, before the planned roadmap, uh, which was, you know, end of October for metropolitan Melbourne. So I think if they continue to have no transmission of the virus from real estate, then I think that will be a real proof point for the industry, as well as for the people who are caught up in this situation where they can't sell and they can't buy anything new. Adrian, just finally, people in that category that you just described then, have we heard anything about what the financial institutions that those people have committed to are doing? Like, What do we think might happen in that space? So as we all know, there's you know potential for a lot of economic issues to arise because of government initiatives being withdrawn or people being compromised in their ability to um, to pay for another property or having to extend their mortgage. Essentially, the banks are having to assess the situation in Victoria very separately to the rest of the country, firstly because of the continued restrictions, but also because of these really tough circumstances. And the banks have had a fallout from the, the Royal Commission, so they're probably doing everything they can to present, put their best foot forward. They need to be aware of um, how they're being perceived by customers, particularly in one of the most difficult economic times we've had in several decades. Yeah, it's their chance to sort of display a very humanitarian side, one might say. But um, at the end of the day, we're talking about businesses, not not not-for-profits. So it's going to be really interesting to watch what actually happens here. Adrian, thank you. This is an incredibly sort of delicate and really challenging situation. So I appreciate you sort of mapping it out for us and um, hope you can jump back on if there is any change or relaxation of restrictions in the coming weeks. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. And now to change gears. Sydney's prestige property market has got off to a flying start this spring with a waterfront Point Piper home sold for a whopping $95 million. Yep, $95 million. The off-market deal is set to rank as Australia's second highest house sale ever when it eventually settles and is priced way well above other prestige sales recorded this year. Joining us today is Domain's Prestige Property Editor, Lucy Macken, who broke news of the off-market deal last week. 
Lucy, thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Look, I'm great, but I'm probably not as great as the agent who did that deal for $95 million, nor the person who now has a home worth that much money. It's quite an incredible story. Yeah, the the figures are a bit sort of straight out of a telephone book, aren't they, really? I mean, it's hard to sort of grapple in your mind just what is in a house that is that good. But, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the bricks and mortar on the waterfront of Point Piper with the right aspect looking at the far end of Wolseley Road that has these gun barrel views to the Harbour Bridge. Lucy, can you tell us about the property and why this result was such a big fat figure? Like what made it worth that much? Yeah, okay, look, first of all, it's a big block of land, 1,800 square metres, you know, so basically half an acre as we know it in our language. Mm. The other thing is its position. If you go about a dozen doors down, closer into the bay, you hit Aussie Johns. And, of course, he had an offer of more than $100 million for his. Amazing residence, huge but amazing, quite a few years ago and knocked it back, as one does. But this is a little bit further towards the sort of pointy end of mm. Point Piper, if you will, where the view is substantially better. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that it wasn't marketed as a house. It is two two-storey apartments. So it was built by Michael Edgeley, the sort of showbiz entrepreneur in the 80s, and then sort of refashioned, if you will, if you mind the pun, by the Katie's co-founders, Joe Brender and Sam Moss, the late Sam Moss, who died a few years ago. And they, you know, best friends, business partners, they had this really sort of extraordinary partnership in life and they shared the same address. You know, one family, Sam Moss and his family lived downstairs and Joe Brenda and his wife Gerda remained living on the top half of it. So it was built originally intended as a house. It was then a duplex. It was sold and and the new owner is going to have it as a house apparently. And all the more intriguing, Lucy, well, for me, but perhaps you'll, you'll tell me it's not, is it's not going to settle until 2022 apparently. Now, is that unusual at the very top end of the market? No, not at all. Not on these structured deals. So, I mean, look, there is the opportunity that the settlement could be brought a bit forward um, and it could be go a bit later. You know, you've you've usually only got one buyer for these singular properties. And long settlements are nothing new at this level. You know, if you remember, there was the classic long settlement structured deal was Brett Blundy's of bras and things, the billionaire. He bought his Rose Bay property. Now, I'm pushing through my memory bank here. He paid $33 million in 2013. Now, he didn't settle on it until 2016. And within a few weeks of that $33 million showing up on property records, it was already up for sale. By then, he'd moved to Singapore. So hadn't lived in it the entire time or hadn't owned it until that point, even though the price was set at 2013 levels. My goodness. Yeah, and settled on it in 2016 and then listed it for sale. It took two years to sell, but he wasn't budging from a bottom line of $45 and that's what he got in 2018 when it finally went. Wow. I find that utterly extraordinary and all the more so at the moment in in terms of this sale that basically we've got a sale of this calibre happening during a global pandemic. Are you surprised by that, that we've got this transaction happening during all this thorniness of this pandemic? Look, I actually am not. Most of this year, talking to the prestige agents who deal at this level, a lot of them have been saying that, you know, there's a flight to safety, that there's a flight to security, you know, safe investments, yada, yada, yada. And that certainly happened in the post-GFC market, if you remember. The thing that will be interesting is that unlike the post-GFC market, 
is that will the border closures that have affected Australia and even statewide and the tighter FERB restrictions that have been introduced in recent years, will that hinder the, the international buyer? into our you know local market and that remains to be seen lucy that was really fascinating thank you so much for sharing that with us and um i look forward to talking with you soon my pleasure see you soon bye and now on to the block contestants jimmy and tam are ones to watch they won the first challenge of the season constructing a gorgeous brighton-esque beach box to have the first choice of which home to renovate They then went on to win the first two room reveals after channelling their love of 1950s design. The Brisbane couple joins us now to give us a bit of an insight into their winning formula, their property journey and to how they're finding the block. Tam and Jimmy, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Now you guys have started out so strong. Congratulations. What is it like watching it all back on TV? Oh, it was an amazing start to the series. Like we did not expect to start that well. It's a bit surreal, really, but we're so grateful for being put in this position. And, guys, how how sort of strategically were you thinking about this? Did you go in really wanting to leave your own sort of hallmark on these houses and have your very distinctive style put through this, or did it happen relatively organically? We definitely went into the block wanting to do something different and try and produce a house that really brought the buyers in and something different for them to fall in love with. But at the same time, it did grow organically as well. And every week we just kept surprising ourselves with what we came up with, really. Yeah, absolutely. Tam, you just seem to embody such style and grace. Tell us about your love for the 50s and where that stems from. I've, I've always been a sucker for an old movie. And I just think that period in time is just so beautiful and especially with design. So when we did have the option of choosing our house, choosing the 50s house was a no-brainer. And I just think once we did get that house, it was giving that house justice. It was it was doing something to that house that we knew the previous owners of that house would be really excited about, something that was really beautiful and bold. So we just hope that everyone's excited about what we've done. And, Tam, I remember one day on set, I think Shelley mentioned to me that you weren't relying heavily on Instagram or, or, you know, you you weren't um, anchored to constantly keep checking back and referring and that. And I was amazed at that all that creativity just, it's obviously just all you. Is that true? It is just literally you're following your own sort of gut instinct on this? Well, yeah. I had an initial idea of the 50s style and I knew what that was and so did Jimmy because he's done so much in bathrooms and things like that before but I wanted it to have a 50s style but I still wanted to have my own individual style as well so yeah incorporating all of that together it just it it's a very unique style it's different it's something that we haven't seen on the block before it's a really comforting style yeah it's really beautiful and that that house as well architecturally just lends perfectly to that era. I mean, what we did in that house, we couldn't have done in any of the other houses. It just wouldn't have worked. So, I mean, the the two just work perfectly together. But as for Pinterest and um, Instagram, I chose not to to go on those. I did right at the start when we first found out about a 50s house. But each week I didn't want to, you know, cloud my brain with other people's interpretations of that era. I wanted it to be something different and unique that we brought to it. 
So if you win the block and get that nice big fat lump sum come auction day, hopefully let's project into the future, what would, what would your dream house or project be? Our dream project would be on property, like yes. hope, hopefully somewhere up near Noosa, like in, in the, you know, the hinterland sort of Karoi area. Uh, we would love to just buy a block of land and then we we would love to just build an off-the-grid shed to start with, a, a nice big shed we can put a mezzanine floor in uh, and live in that while we design our dream house and just take our time to, you know, get it perfect. And what, what sort of style do you think you'd go for if you're in an, in an area like that? And off the grid, would it would that sort of be reflected in the in the style of it? We'd want high pitched ceilings. We'd want exposed yeah, beams. exposed beams. Just a really comfortable living. Like I, it wouldn't be. It actually wouldn't be anything fifties. I don't. I don't know. Something that was just beautiful and again, again, organic is the way for us. Yeah, Alice, exactly. we, we would get the space and see where we went from there, and and you know what works would it just flow through. Yeah, exactly. And I have no doubt it will be dripping in wonderful taste. Jimmy and Tam, all the very best, and thank you so much for joining us today on Property Unpacked. No worries. Thanks, Alice. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question we could help you answer, let us know. You can send us an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. Property Unpacked is hosted by me, Alice Stoltz. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Danielle Giannopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au.